blanks to fill in. When we get to the last blank, you'll know that I'm about finished. And, uh, but I want to begin by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we read, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And while I'm speaking about love, um, I just remembered I forgot to say thank you for everybody who participated in hospitality for the service here yesterday, uh, for a little Emmett Lingle, and uh, just appreciate you uh, being here and all the hard work that went into preparation and cleanup and all of that. I appreciate it very much. But if we don't have love, we're just a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, in comparison, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, you will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I begin there because of where we are in 1 John chapter 4, an ongoing study in the first part of chapter 5. And uh, last Sunday morning, we did part one of that section uh, where I titled the message, Love, Honor, and Obey. Made this observation at the beginning of the message last week in a way of review. God's plan is to perfect his love in us. God's plan is to perfect his love in us. Verse 17 begins, by this love is perfected with us. By this love is perfected. We said that word perfected, perfect, means completeness, wholeness, maturity. I read 1 Corinthians 13 to show you what mature, complete love looks like. Anybody arrived yet? We're on our way there though, right? That's what the Lord's plan and purpose is, is to work that into us that we come to that full mature capacity to love God and to love each other. To love God and love each other. And as we grow in our knowledge of God and 
grown our love for God, we'll naturally love each other and our love will, will mature because God is love. We've read that, that God is spirit and God is light. John tells us those things and, and God is love. So we're going to, for context, we're going to be reading verse 17 again this morning. I won't cover the first two points other than to remember you what they were. Uh, but for the context, let's read verse 17 of 1 John chapter 4. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5 goes on to say, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ had been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? At the core of being a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to be continually growing in love. Because Jesus said, all the law, all the prophets, hang on these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. If you've done these, you've come to a place of maturity where you have become obedient to the whole word of God. I made this statement last week and I repeat it. Mature Christian love is the number one need among God's people. It's not in your notes anywhere, but it's mature Christian love is the number one need among God's people. How will the world know that we are Christ's disciples? By the fact that we love one another. Oh, that the world would be able to look at the body of Christ as a whole and say they really love each other and God must really be alive. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan for us. That's our goal. In my opinion, every one of the fruits of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians chapter 5 is a derivative of love. It said the fruits of the Spirit are love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, on and on. But I think it all goes back to that word love. All of those things, when I love God and allow God's love to flow through me, peace, and joy, and loving kindness, all of those things are the fruit of loving God. So how do we know if we are maturing in our love? Well, we can look at First Corinthians 13 and measure up against that. But John gives us, in this context, I believe, four evidences of the fact that we are growing in our love for God and for each other, and it's becoming more mature. 
Last week we covered the first two points. The first one was this, a holy confidence. A holy confidence. Because I understand how much God loves me and how much I love God, I have this confidence that on the day of judgment, I will not have any fear. Because I know that God loves me so much that he gave his only begotten son that if I put my faith in him, all my sins have been washed away by the blood of the lamb. So when I stand before God on the judgment day, I will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Not because I'm perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. And his sacrifice was perfect. And I am totally dependent upon that sacrifice. So I know that I will stand before God in great confidence. We will be rewarded according to how well we've obeyed the Lord and the works that we've done. But we do not have to fear because our names are written in the book of life and underneath of our names is forgiven, 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 forgiven. Secondly, when I'm maturing in love for God, there is a, I live a life of honesty. A life of honesty. Verse 20 starts out, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The six times in the first four chapters, we read that, If anyone says, and every time it is a warning, a warning not to deceive yourself, and not to try to deceive other people by saying one thing and being another thing. It is when I'm maturing in love, I'm walking openly before the Lord. As He is in the light, I walk in the light. I don't deceive myself. I speak the truth about who I am, who God is. Fear and pretense go together. When I have fear in my, is it love cast out, perfect love cast out fear? Fear always causes us to cover up, to put on a mask, to, to pretend that we are something that we're not. We said pretending is childish behavior. And in fact, you worry about a child who doesn't have the ability to pretend. But when we grow up, we read in 1 Corinthians 13, when I grow up, I no longer use childish thinking I become mature. I don't walk in fear. This is in your notes. Someone maturing in the love for God must know themselves and be themselves. Fulfilling the purposes for which Christ saved them. They must know themselves and be themselves. Fulfilling the purposes for which Christ saved them. Our lives must be marked by honesty. They must be marked by honesty. That's last week's message in a nutshell. We begin this morning with the third evidence. And the third evidence that love is maturing is joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. Verse 1 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Verse 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. We know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Number three, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not 
burdensome. It's not a matter of fear that I obey God. It's not a matter of obligation. It goes way beyond not wanting judgment. I learned to obey my father early because I discovered that the belt across the cheeks hurt and I didn't like pain. It's not that. It, it goes way beyond that, being fear of the punishment. It's I obey his commandments because I love him. And it's not burdensome, he says. It's a joyful obedience. It's not like the little boy who got in trouble and had a time out and he's sitting in the chair. And they told him, don't, don't you move until your time is up. And he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> We're talking joyful obedience. Consider this. Everything else in creation obeys God. Everything else in creation obeys God. The psalmist said in Psalms 148, verse 7, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. Take some time this week to read the story of Jonah. Chapter 1 is a very interesting story. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach. Jonah said, they'll repent. I don't want them to repent. I want judgment on them. So he goes the opposite direction. And you read that God spoke to the wind and the waves. You remember he gets thrown overboard. God appointed a great fish to swallow him. When he finally repents, really repents three days later, it says God spoke to the fish and the fish vomited him up on the beach. He went and preached. The people repented. Jonah got mad. He goes and sits on the hillside, builds himself a little lean to it. He's watching, hoping that the city's going to be destroyed at some point in time. God causes a bush to grow up behind him to give him shade. And he thanks God for the bush. It says that God caused that. And then it says God spoke to the worm. And the worm eats the bush. And then Jonah says, God, just kill me. But my point of that whole story is, and Jonah didn't learn about joyful obedience, did he? But the wind and the waves, the plant, the worm, they all did the Lord's bidding. Everything in creation obeys God except human beings whom God gave a free will. Remember what the disciples said one day when they woke Jesus up in the midst of the storm and he stands up and says, peace be still. And their question is, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? 
Everything else in creation obeys God. And God, or John tells us, this is how we know we are maturing in our love for God and our understanding of his love for us. We joyfully obey his commands. You know, Paul wrote that God loves a cheerful giver. One who does not give grudgingly or under compulsion. I think John is saying this similar thing about living. A maturing believer joyfully lives in obedience to the Lord's commands. Because joyful obedience is a, a family matter. It's a family matter. He said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Because we love our Heavenly Father, we love our siblings in the Lord. Because our motivation is love, obedience is the outflow. By this we know that we love the children, we love God and obey his commandments. D.L. Moody said, often every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And what he meant by that is we show our love to God not by empty words, but by willing works, by the things that we do. We are far more than slaves obeying the master. We are children obeying a father. It's a family matter. We are children obeying a father. We are children obeying a father. It's magic. And when I say obeying a father, we're talking about a perfect father. A perfect father. Never a, fa a father who never gives us a command that is not in our best interest. He's never laid down a law that hurts us. Every law that God gave, every command that God gave, is in our best interest. And how often we find out the hard way that that's the way it was. God created it. He gave those things for... Because, you see, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is love. The kind of love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. So maturing love delights in the Word of God. Maturing love delights in the Word of God. Verse 3 said, His commandments are not burdensome. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that that the unsaved person is not able to understand the word. And, and an immature believer may be like a child who responds to their parents' directives with questions. Why? Why? Why do I have to do that? Or a teenager. Isn't there a better way to do that? But one of the signs of Perfected love, mature love, is our attitude towards God and his commandments. Lord, what is it you want me to do? I had a few coaches that played different sports. Their expectation was when they said the jump that you asked how high on the way up. And there was coaches who joyfully did that. We won't talk about the ones you didn't so joyful about. But our Father, 
It's a joyful thing to obey him because he always has our best interest. Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible in terms of verses. 176 verses. It's an acrostic type poem. Every section of eight verses begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's all about the Word of God. Every verse, but I think two, um, speaks about the Word of God in, in one word or another. His precepts, his laws, um, every, every verse except two out of 176. I want you to see the author's attitude toward the Word of God. Psalms 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 14 says this, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. His word was more important than having money. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Psalms 119, verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I delight in them. Because verse 103 says this. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 54 says this. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of of my sojourning. Your, your laws have been my songs. Have you recently written any songs about laws? Traffic laws? The psalmist said, your words is so, I, I delight in that. I delight in that. I delight, to the point I sing songs about it. Why? Because he loves God and knows that God loves him. That's where it all starts, is understanding God loves me. God loves me. We love him because he first loved us. We know we're growing up and love is being made complete because we love him. It's not hard to keep those commitments. So as we love the Father, we're maturing in love, we have confidence, we're no longer afraid of His will, we're honest towards ourselves and toward each other, we have a new attitude toward the Word of God, this holy confidence, a life of honesty, joyful obedience, are the marks of perfecting love and the ingredients that make up a happy Christian life. Perhaps... The story of Jacob in Genesis illustrates the depth of love, what it looks like. You remember when he fled from his brother because he deceived his father and deceived his brother and all of that. And God says he's going to bless him anyway. And he gets to the, the land of his forefathers, Laban, stops at a well, talking to the people there. And a young woman comes to water the sheep. He sees them, rolls away the stone over the well and helps her and uh, introduces himself. They find out that they're cousins. I don't know how far removed, but they're cousins. Um, she invites him home and Laban embraces him because here's his nephew. 
Um, and we won't get into the cousins marrying each other, but he falls in love with Rachel. And uh, Laban offers to hire him, and they negotiate a price for his labor. And you remember what the price was? Jacob's, Jacob says, I'll work seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. I mean, this guy had a bad case. Seven years I'll work. And it seemed to him, seven years, they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years seemed a few days because of the love he had for her. That's the attitude John is talking about because God loves us, we love him. And because we love him, obeying him, obeying his commands is a delight and not a burden. The fourth evidence that we have that we're maturing in love is victory. We have victory. John 5, or 1 John 5, 4 says this, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Overcome the world. Back in chapter 2, we talked about the world. When he's using this terminology, he's talking about a way of living that does not include God or God's words. He's talking about the human nature that is all about pleasing itself. He's talking about our human nature that is born in sin because of Adam's choice to disobey God and the one command that God gave him. Paul described the conflict that has to be overcome as we mature in our love for God and each other. In the latter part of Romans chapter 7, most of you remember this because you've read Romans once. He said, so if I find it to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on in the next chapter, and there's no condemnation now to them who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, because of Jesus Christ. But there is this conflict that he talks about. He said, but in Christ, and when we understand how much God loves us and we love him, we are set free from the law of sin and death, and we live by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what part of John is saying here. For everyone who's born of God, overcomes the world. Born of God means that now we have the divine nature abiding in us. We have the divine nature abiding in us. Jesus made the promise that when you obey my commandments, the Father and I will come and make our dwelling place, our abode in you. Victory is a result of allowing this new nature to be in control. 
That was the struggle that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 7. Which nature is in control? Victory is the result of allowing this new nature to be in control. If I allow my old nature to be in control, obeying the words of God is almost impossible because my old nature is more apt to go with the flow of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life that we read about in the second chapter. Victory is the result of our faith. It is a result of our faith. The verse says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. We grow in faith as we grow in love. The more you love someone, the easier it is to trust them. The more our love for God is perfected, the more faith in Him is perfected as well. It seems to me that faith and love mature together. Faith and love mature together. We read this word, overcome, several times in John's writing. Here we have it three times in, in two verses. John uses the word overcome again seven times in the book of Revelation as he gives the letters that Jesus gives to the seven churches. One of the titles we have been given because of our faith in Jesus Christ is overcomer. We are overcomers. I'm a child of God. And because I'm a child of God living by faith in Jesus Christ, I am an overcomer. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, If Christ be for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? He quotes from Isaiah, We are all like sheep being slaughtered. And he said, No, 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 no. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We are overcomers. From time to time, we sing a song. My wife loves to sing and loves to lead. She brought it to, the, to our attention. The bridge of that song says this, The same man, the great I am, the one who overcame death, he's living inside of you. So just hold tight, fix your eyes on the one who holds your life, there's nothing he can't do. He's telling you, you're an overcomer. Stay in the fight till the final round. You're not going under because God is holding you right now. We overcome by our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Read a story that's told about a soldier in the army of Alexander the Great not acting very bravely in battle. When he should have been pressing forward, he was kind of lagging behind. General Alexander approached him and he said, what is your name, soldier? And the soldier said, my name is Alexander. The general looked him straight in the eye and said firmly, soldier, get in there, fight, or change your name. Get in your... Get in there and fight or change your name. What is our name? We are the children of God. Born again of God. Alexander the Great wanted his name to be a symbol of courage. Our name carries with it the assurance of victory. We are overcomers. 
by our faith in God. This is the victory of faith by faith in what? Not faith in ourselves by any means. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I remind you, he's writing this letter because of a false doctrine that has cropped up in Ephesus and is infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor that refuted the fact that Jesus was really Son of God, that they, their, their theology was that Jesus was just a man. When he was baptized, the Spirit of God came upon him until they took him and started to crucify him and then the Spirit left him because God could no way be crucified. John reminds these believers of the gospel message that they embraced at the beginning, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth, lived as one of us, gave his life for us, rose again, and sits at the right hand of the Father right now. And because of that, now we are the sons of God, living by faith. We are overcomers not because of our greatness, not because of our intelligence, but because of our simple faith in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, who lives in us. John 16, said this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. My identity is in Christ. My victory is in Christ. For Christ is in me. It is so absolutely important to understand that in maturing as a believer. My identity is in Christ. My victory is in Christ. For Christ is in me. One of the themes that keeps coming up in John's writings, whether you're talking about his gospel, whether you're talking about 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or even Revelation, is Christ abiding in us. He uses the phrase, as he is, more than once in this letter to 1st John. Verse 7 says this in 1st John 1, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When you get to chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about abiding. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 16 of chapter 4, we read earlier, if we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love and abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So we have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We are overcomers when we claim our position in Christ by faith and act on it. We are overcomers when we claim our position in Christ by faith and act on it. As I was typing my notes, I said, I fear. And then I'm, thought, no, that, I'm not, not that sure good way to say it, but I'm saying it the way. I fear that far too many people don't understand or forget who we are in Christ. 
in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of circumstances that we didn't see coming and we forget who we are or we don't believe who we are. Let me remind you what takes place when we are born again. Our water baptism is an outward expression of what we believe takes place inwardly. When Christ died, we died with him. We identify with his death. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Christ died, I died with him. When Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And when he arose, so did we. When Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And when he arose, so did we. Romans 6, 4 said this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. When we have a baptismal service, you will hear me say to an individual, ask him questions. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins and that God raised him from the dead? And is it your intention to live for him the rest of your life? And if they say yes, on your confession, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we submerge them, it's a picture of I identify with, I went into the grave with Jesus Christ when he died for me. But he didn't stay in the grave. He opened up the door so that I can just walk through. And when I come out of the water, I resurrected along with Christ to newness of life. I am declaring that I understand when I put my faith in him, old things passed away, all things became new. And now I have entered into eternal life that begins here and now. It begins here and now. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will never die. Oh, this body will expire. We'll put it in a box, either a long one or a little one. But my spirit will be with the Lord. When Christ ascended into heaven, we ascended with him. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Chew on that for a day or two. In the spirit realm, I'm seated in heavenly places. When Christ returns, we will share in his exaltation. When Christ returns, we will share in his exaltation. Colossians 3, 4 said, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I died with him, I was buried with him, I have risen to death, from death to life in him. I'm now a child of God, a member of his family, a part of his body, seated with him in heavenly places. And look what Paul has to say about that position that we share in Christ Jesus because Christ is in us and we're in, in him. I'm going to jump into the middle of the prayer in the end of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He, he started earlier and he said, I pray that 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So I was reading that last night. I had a flashback. 50 years ago of sitting with Maudine Near, a little old lady who was part of our church. Billy Sanders and I would, had just started working on staff here in 1971 and, and we would go call on her when we wanted to be encouraged. Our job was to go encourage people but she never needed encouragement. But I can remember one day, she said, I want to read to you a passage of Scripture. And this is a lady who had been dead for six hours. Her story appears in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Been dead for six hours. Declared dead. Death certificate signed by the doctor. She saw things in heaven. Saw the glory of God. And... and the Lord said, all leaves and no fruit. And she came back. She was in her mid-twenties. She lived to be almost a hundred. But when she began to read this scripture, her face just began to glow. As she, began, as she, she understood, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It says the same power that raised Christ from the dead is working in your life and my life. Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, has authority every, over everything in the spirit realm. We read in verse 6 of chapter 2, we are seated with him there. Now, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying these verses say that we become just like God. There are cults that would tell you that you're going to be a God. But we, because he's in us, and we are in him, we are overcomers. Though tribulations come, and they will, we will overcome. Though the enemy attacks, we will overcome. Though, though the fact that John says you're an overcomer, that declares to us there's going to be a conflict, there's going to be a war, there's going to be a struggle. But we do not fear the conflict. We do not succumb to the fear tactics of the enemy because Christ is in us and he seats at the highest seat of authority. Where a man sits determines how much authority he may exercise. When I make that statement, I'm thinking about our business world, for example. A company of any great size will have different levels of leadership. 
the, the general manager of a company has a limited level of authority. He has authority over all the people under him and that have been assigned under him. However, there's probably a vice president who sits in a chair just above the general manager and the general manager will answer to him. But there's another tier. There's the desk of the president or the chief executive officer, the chair where the buck stops. That is the chair that demands the most respect. That is the chair with the most authority. So it is with the child of God. Our authority is determined by our position in Christ. I'll say it again. When the Holy Spirit gave to us the faith to believe in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, we died with him, we were buried with him. In the grave, he blew open the door. We rose from the death and from sinful life and adopted in the family of God, made part of a forever family, a member of his body. And because of our union with him, we are now seated in heavenly realms, spirit realm, knowing that everything that takes place in our life, he is at work in those circumstances, perfecting in us his love, his image, making us more like him. There's a story told of the Civil War, of a veteran of the Civil War that would wander from place to place, begging a bed to sleep in and a bite to eat, always talking about his friend, Mr. Lincoln. Because of his injuries from the war, he was unable to hold down a steady job. But as long as he could keep going, he would chat about his beloved president. You say, you knew Mr. Lincoln, a skeptical bystander, retorted one day. I'm not so sure you did. Prove it. The old man said, well, I can prove it. In fact, I have a piece of paper here that Mr. Lincoln himself signed and gave it to me. And from his wallet, the man took out a much folded piece of paper and showed it to the man. He said, I'm not much for reading, but I know Mr. Lincoln's signature right there. The man looked at it. Do you know what you have here? One of the spectators asked. You have a generous federal pension authorized by President Lincoln. You don't have to walk around like a poor beggar. Mr. Lincoln made you rich. To paraphrase what John wrote, you Christians do not have to walk around defeated because Jesus Christ made you victors. He's defeated the enemy. He defeated the enemy. And we share in his victory. Now, by faith, claim his victory. By faith, claim his victory. The key, of course, is faith. But that's always been God's key to victory. The great men and women of Hebrews chapter 11 won the victory because by faith they obeyed the word of God. By faith they obeyed the word of God. They simply took God's word to act on it. He honored their faith and he gave them victory. Faith is not simply saying that what God says is true. True faith is acting on what God says because it's true. 
Faith is not simply saying that what God says is true. True faith is acting on what God says because it is true. Someone has said faith is not so much believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. Let me read that, say that one more time. I probably should put that in your notes. Faith is not so much believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham left the land of Ur, really not knowing where he was going because God said to. Victorious faith is a result of maturing love. The more we come to know the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ, the easier it is to trust him in the battles of life. It is important that this maturing love become a regular, practical thing on our daily lives. So to summarize it, we know love is becoming complete because we have a holy confidence about the day of judgment. We have a holy confidence about the day of judgment. If the Holy Spirit touches you once on the heart and once on the lungs today, and you stand before God, are you ready? Are you ready? We know love is becoming complete because we live in honesty. We're walking in the light as he is in the light. We're walking with the top down. He can see in every compartment of our life. Honesty. We know love is becoming complete because we're walking in joyful obedience. It's a delight to do what God wants me to do. To obey His Word. To obey His leading. We know that we are maturing in love because we have the victory. Victory. We are overcomers. I want to stand and sing the chorus we sang last week. Again, who you say I am. And I want us to go today with that declaration in our heart.